Where in our, our case is more like what the FBI did, you know, infiltrating the mafia or something like that. We have to maintain a clandestine and secure relationship, but also a very healthy relationship. Uh, we have we have a motto in, in in the business that says you never fall in love with your agent, but you make them think that you're in love with them. You're always ops testing them. You're always double checking. You always put them under surveillance to make sure that they're doing what they say that we're doing. Um, but it is very different because it's a very different goal. We right. don't we don't work on dollars. We work on intelligence. Well, let's let's use that as a good springboard to start moving forward because you start a lot of your role starts changing. We start talking about the Cold War. You talk, start talking about terrorism starts rearing his head. Um, but at some point, you became uh, worked with Michael Schur and Alex Station, the Bin Laden um, unit. Tell us about that. Yeah, I, I had just come back from Korea. I had just gotten my GS fifteen, um, and I was the head of the Palestinian branch for CTC, our counterterrorist center. And um, I got called into the front office by the chief of ops. Uh, and he said, look, you know, you, your, your name has been raised to be deputy chief of station um, for this virtual station targeting terrorism. I had never heard of virtual station. That was we were the first. And, um, and talking to my boss, I said, uh, oh, thank you, boss. I mean, you know, of course, I'll be you know, deputy chief of station. Hell yeah. Um, but who are we going after? And he said, Osama bin Laden. And I said, who? And he goes, exactly. <laughs> hmm, yeah. um, Mike Sawyer, Sawyer was the analyst that had been following this. So he was the chief of station for Alex Station. I was his deputy chief of station. And I was a senior ops officer. We only had two other case officers. The rest were analysts, um, incredible analysts and target officers. And by the way, that's the very same unit that eventually got bin Laden uh, you know, geo geolocated and allowed under our authorities for the SEAL team to go shoot him in the face. Excellent. Room temperature was a good result for that. But um, yeah, and the you know, and the sad part is too. Um, I did some work with the State Department over in Islamabad training their police, their federal investigative agency, special investigative group. And while we were there at that time, is about the time they figured Bin Laden ended up in a Badabad. and that's just about thirty clicks north, uh, thirty or forty clicks north of uh, Islamabad. Uh, you know, right under literally everybody's noses. I just, I still have some heartburn over uh, how much cooperation he got from the Pakistani government. Did you have concerns about that or am I just off in left field here? Probably. No, uh, the Pakistani uh, government is completely um, dual purpose. You have people that love of us and people that love to kill us, meaning Americans. Um, they're They're the ones that created the Taliban, for God's sake. Um, they're the, the intelligence service literally ISI, was the, the ones that actually helped create the, the Taliban. So that penetration was always there. We, we did have, according to people that worked there, I never did. Um, we did have some very good liaison relationships with some Pakistanis, but there was, there were, there were infiltrated from the other side too, quite a bit. Yeah. We ended up kicking a couple people out of our training that, uh, had, uh, once some tenuous connections came into under you know came to light, it was like, yeah, I think it spells ISI is what you should have put down as your organization. But um, but what I'm interested in, let's go back to that because that you know, like you said, Bin Laden, who not many people took him seriously. He issued his fatwa. You know, he said, here's what we're going to do, and then we started getting the bombings. We we got some bombings of the embassies, right? That's correct. Well, you know, yeah, that that is one of the things that. Um set us all off because um, we had, um, when Bin Laden was still in Khartoum when we opened up the, the station, when we started our Alex station, and we had recorded intelligence from a very dear friend of mine, a Green Beret legend and CIA legend by the name of Billy Waugh. Um, Billy was the head of security for Code for Black in Khartoum at the time when, uh, when he was there. He's also the guy that 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 saw and helped the rest. It helped capture the Carlos the Jackal, the renowned terrorist from the seventies of Europe. Um, but he was the guy in charge of doing surveillance of Bin Laden, and he had him. You know, he knew what he was going to have for lunch. He knew what car he drove. He was in the white. Uh, he was not concerned because you know in, in Khartoum at the time, uh, it was like a terrorist hotel, and he was putting pouring all kinds of money. So we came up with several plans 
to kidnap him, to kill him, whatever it took. Um, and the, the then administration kept saying, well, we don't have enough proof. And our argument was we got overhead from satellites of the kind of training that he's that he's facilitating with former jihadists in, in these other countries. We're getting all source information from all kinds of different governments that he's extorting money from the Saudis. He's doing this. He's doing that. He's bringing people in from Afghanistan. When, you know, you know, the motto of CTC is supposed to be, you know, preempt, disrupt. Those, this is what we do. And the administration never, ever bought off on that. And uh, what I always tell people is that imagine in 1997 or late 96, early 97, if we would have been able to neutralize bin Laden, the coal, the bombings of our two embassies, and maybe even 9-11 could have been derailed. You know, and and, and reading, and I'll, I'll give away a little bit in your book here, chapter 28, where you talk about that. You know, I mean, you just lay it out, and I love it. You know, the, the answer is clear thanks to the history and hindsight. Those 4,000 people killed in one of the U.S. embassy attacks in Africa will still be alive today. Untraumatized, unscarred by their terrible luck, USS Cole would never have been attacked. The Pentagon would have never been hit by the American Airlines flight. The Twin Towers would still be standing. The 3,000 people who died in the World Trade Center would still be with us. Uh, families wouldn't be unaffected. The uh, I mean, it just goes on and on. It's amazing how much destruction, terrorism, chaos, anarchy he caused. And the point from all of this is that our administration at the time didn't have the cojones to take care of business. That is the yeah, bottom. I, I mean, you do a very good job explaining that in the book. I, I really appreciated that. Thank you. It's, it was definitely a fact. You know, uh, at the time, the agency was supporting us. Uh, they were carrying our water across the uh, the, the river, but um, we were definitely not getting the, the the traction there. And a lot of people took that very personal, uh, especially I was chief of ops of the counterterrorist center when 9-11 happened. So that, that really stuck in my craw. Yeah. Well, I can't imagine. Well, and there's an interesting... Uh, some of it, maybe it's a little bit lower, but when the original World Trade Center attacks happened, they tried to bomb them, the, the idiots, which thankfully they returned the van trying to, or they tried to report it stolen. That's how we ended up getting the guys. But one of the things that came out of this, I think that helped kind of uh, uh, help them with their future planning is when they were in court, they bring in some of the structural engineers. It, you come to find out the uh, the World Trade Center, the Twin Towers were designed to withstand the impact of a 737. So then you start, so why are, why are the 757s and 67s targeted? Why? Because unfortunately, that's, that's, you never know what kind of information is going to be used by somebody later. And that's, I don't know if that helped formulate some of his planning, but it's definitely some of the stuff that came out when you find out what they're designed to withstand. And then, like you say, you get, we see, we, I think our part of our failing is we tend to think too short term. We, we tend, why would they think like that? That's not the point. It, you need to think like your adversary. Your adversary doesn't think like you. That's why they win. That's why they're able to pull off a lot of the stuff because they're thinking differently than us. When you, and I want to get into nine eleven and what you see there, but up into that point, what was what do you think was the biggest impediment other than political? Was it the way that we had been trained that we didn't really understand uh, Islamic law? We didn't understand what Bin Laden that he really meant the fatwa that he did. Were there some other things that contributed to this uh, other than political? I, you know, it's political is is the number one problem that you have. You know, you cannot run operations, military or intelligence, uh, through an optic of politics. Okay, it's it's a very you know, there's two different worlds, and uh, you know, at at the time, the politics were um, non engagement. They they had other problems going on. Um, you know, the old uh, well, all it's going to do is is going to really foment even more Islamic uh, terrorism you know, uh, radical terrorism. And, you know, at, at the end of the day, we're we're so hamstrung because, look, the Chinese have 100-year-old plants. The Russians have 50-year-long plants. We in the United States have four-year plants, maybe three, because by the third year, you have to start campaigning to get reelected. And if there's a change, everything gets derailed, and we've seen that happen time and time again. Jimmy Carter... Great person, wonderful man, you know, very, very, you know, Christian, blah, blah, blah. But he was, he was a wimp. 
And then Reagan comes in and all of a sudden, you know, we, we get things, uh, things done. So it, that, that phase for, for us puts us in a real handicap. They don't have to deal with Congress. I'm not saying that we shouldn't, on the contrary. But we, um, we definitely need to develop long-term strategies that benefit our country and not a, any political party. Well exactly said. right. Yeah. Exactly. Your, your description to your discussion, your meeting with uh, Diane Feinstein, who was actually a supporter of DEA at one point uh, when she was much younger. But uh, wow, uh, being the head of the Intelligence Committee. And her response to you guys, and, and for our listeners, you've got to read this book. I mean, it's just, it's really, really eye-opening. I was shocked by her response to you guys. Yeah, that was, that was a painful experience and, and a very big experience. It was my, I was already a senior grade officer. I made SIS in 98. And um, when we went to brief her, um, she was so vile and so hostile. Um, you know, uh, it, it was incredible. But uh, it was it was an eye-opener about, you know, again, more, more indications of how bad politics can can be for for our community of sheepdogs. You know. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, uh, Charlie Mann was the name of the uh, the DEA guy who um, wanted to recruit me, who got killed in the uh, Charlie Mann M A N N. Okay. Yeah, and that was before my time. But God bless him. Yeah. I think it was nineteen seventy seventy five. No, it was before that. It was before that. The building collapsed. I was still, I was I was either just out of high school or uh, senior year in high school. And I graduated in 1970. I have uh, the photo and the write-up. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll send you a photocopy of that. Yeah. Let's talk about now 9-11, because so many of us have got some intersection with it. You are like, you are at the center of the universe on this stuff. Uh some of the other people, I've told them this before, I was in the Reagan building, we were supposed to be in the Pentagon meeting switch, so I'm in the Reagan building when the when the planes hit, and I remember walking across the bridge, seeing the Pentagon burning. You know, when the first plane hit, you know, hey, there's something wrong here. Then the second one, it was obvious. But what, when 9-11 happened with you, what what clicked, what changed? Because, um, you know, it, it, the easiest way for things to happen is for people to get religion. Well, one way to get religion is for a bad incident to happen. People go, yeah, we should have done that. I don't want to get. I don't want to get engaged in like we 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 told you so type of stuff. But it was almost like, did any part of your head go, man? We told you so. Yeah, we did. We we were hoping that this wouldn't happen, but we told you so. And then how did you re, how did you how did you respond? How did things change once nine eleven happened? How did it change in terms of op tempo priorities? What what they were willing to do to take the politics out of it and do what needed to be done? It's, and that's an excellent question, an excellent example of the way things can be done. Um, you know, the, the agency got tapped directly by the president to, you know, pay back for 9-11, figure out who it was, go out there and target them. And a lot of people don't realize that the first boots on the ground in Afghanistan wasn't the Green Beret guys. Love them to death. I have some in the family. But it was my guys, guys that we sent, guys like Mike Spann, several others, you know, uh, that, that were the first guys in and vector those helicopters in. So the agency... This was a resurrection of the agency yet again. The Contra program was the first one. And now this, again, really put a lot of authorities on, on active. Uh, our president then, uh, Bush, signed on 17 September. He signed a lethal finding that allowed us to do whatever we needed to do to neutralize this threat. And um, it all goes into the politics. You know, we we have Title 50 authorities which means we are allowed to do anything outside of the United States that the president of the United States authorizes us to do or directs us to do. So the gloves came off. You know, we started, you know, getting, getting, we got into Afghanistan. We helped the military come in. We started neutralizing the Taliban. We started hitting these guys with drones. I, I personally, there's, there's a, a story in the book where I, I blew up 17 of these uh, alpha hotels uh, so we, the gloves were off, but here was the biggest tipping point for me. I had grown up seeing local terrorism, then international terrorism, and understanding that preventing, preventing and, and disrupting terrorist operations is what's really all about. And we did not have that for 9-11. We knew that something was happening, 
every indication. They had gone radio silent, which was a big tip off. They kept talking about weddings and all this kind of stuff. They honey, which used to be uh, things for explosives. They called it honey. These were key words. We know something big was going on, but we couldn't pinpoint it and we couldn't disrupt it. So what came out of 9-11, besides a very robust response by CTC uh, and CIA writ large uh, in, in the war in Afghanistan and in, in the military, of course, is I came up with a program uh, that was meant to derail exactly this. My, my concept, and it, I, I briefed uh, Vice President Cheney and Condoleezza Rice. It's, it's all in the book. Um, the, but the Reader's Digest version of it is the... Uh, the concept was to make book on two or three individuals from the support side of the house of every terrorist group and even some narcotics groups who were contemplating. The idea being that, you know, the, the leaders are hard to get at. The shooters are a dime a dozen. But the support individuals, they're, they're the soft belly of any illegal organization, whether it be terrorists or, 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 or narcotics. The money so people, knowing, yeah, the money people, the logistics, the support, anything that makes those it, things happen. Exactly. They're the ones, they're the movers and shakers, but they have to have a public persona. You cannot do that from a cave in Afghanistan. So what we did was we identified three Hezbollah, three Al-Qaeda, three this, that, and the other. And we sent out my guys. I I, I actually quit the chief ops job and went into, became um, special invest investigations team or something like that. Uh, we were out there literally in first, second, and third world countries getting patterns of life on, on these guys and developing operational scenarios. The concept being, using Hezbollah as, as an example, Hezbollah had killed more Americans than any other terrorist organization prior to 9-11. Including, was That's it 243 it. Marines? Yep, one of them, my first karate student, as a matter of fact. Um, the, uh, the, the concept being that if all of a sudden we start getting chatter from Hezbollah that something's going on, something's going on, the indicators, peripheral sources are identifying that, liaison services are identifying that, what do you think happens to an organization if all of a sudden three of your key support mechanisms get shut down? And we had three options. Compromise them, you know, put drugs in their car, put explosives in their cars, call the cops, duct tape them, do, do a rendition operation, or just shoot them. Uh, what, what would an organization that all of a sudden has three of their people in different places all wrapped up in the same, at the same moment? They're going to hit the brakes because they're going to think they're penetrating. Mm -hmm. So that was the concept that, that I developed. Uh, we had the team. We delivered. Uh, we had uh, a very robust uh, operational scenarios for several real bad guys that, that needed to be neutralized that like we should have done with bin Laden one way or the other. Uh, whatever the, the president decided was legal. Uh, but, um, you know, we, we deliver on all that, but they never allowed us to neutralize any of the targets. And after my second briefing, and there, there's an explanation of that in the book too with Pavitt, Jim Pavitt was our DDO and, and uh, the DCI, George Tennant, um, that I briefed on, on a very sophisticated operation. We had sweated all the details. And... Um, at the end, the uh, the DDO says, um, Mr. Director, there's no doubt in my mind, in our mind, that Prado and his guys not only can do this, but they can get away with it. I'm ready to do high fives, right? Then he says, however, we have to look at the political implications of doing this now. Um, I retire 60 days later. Oh, geez. Um, that was, uh, I, and you outlined that in the book, I've, I'm looking at the page right here in my hand as, as you're talking and it just, man, it just, it just drains the the wind out of your sails hearing that they back off when it's time to take action like that. And it's, it's not that we want to be murderers here in the United States. We're trying to protect Americans. That's what this whole thing's about. I mean, we're talking about true American heroes and patriots here that are doing everything they can to protect us. And we let politics get in the way. And, and that, that is the problem. And you look, you know, we're at war with terrorism. We're at war with communism. People, we have a so good as country that we don't know, not only know how good we have it, but we don't understand the, the real threats that are out there. Our soldiers, they can kill somebody in, in a combat zone, right? 
Or, or, or if you're a police officer and somebody shoots back at you and tries to resist or something, whatever it is, you are allowed to, to neutralize that target. We, as U.S. government writ large, how many people have we killed with drones? Mm -hmm. Quite a few. Well deserved. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. The problem is my program, the one that I try to put together or the one that I put together, um, we had, like you said, real good Americans on the ground in dangerous areas, surveilling these guys, photographing these guys, getting patterns of life of these guys. But we were not allowed to neutralize them. And that's another handicap. You know, you cannot fight a war unless you are neutralizing the enemy. And in war, there's only one way to neutralize the enemy is to take them down. Well, you know, perfect example is after 9-11, our, our country galvanized. We all came together. Man, we were so ticked off. There were Ameri I was living up in D.C. at the time, and, and there were American flags hanging from every bridge out on the toll roads. It didn't matter where you went. There were, um, there were people had taken bed sheets and, and you know, America strong, and, and everybody was on the same page of music. But, man, we have such short memories. You know, it, once <laughs> it was no time at all before people started going back the other way. It's like, well, I mean, do we, you know, we got to be nice to these people. It's it's like a lot of cops think you got to give the bad guy the first shot. They got to be able to shoot at you first before you can respond. That's not the law at all. It just it just boggles your mind. And, you know, there's so many good do-gooders in our country here. Go visit and live in a foreign country for just a short amount of time and then come back to the United States and tell me what you think then, because I think you I think you'll change your position. Oh, I am convinced of that. And I and, and I, I can definitely vouch for that. But, you know, to clarify a point, it wasn't the administration that did not approve this, because remember, I briefed the vice president of the United States and Condoleezza Rice, mm -hmm. and their word was go get it mm -hmm. done. You let us know before you pull the trigger. We will we will uh, brief the right people in Congress. But once you have a, a final ops plan, come back to us. It was CIA administration that unfortunately uh, had lost their backbone through politics. You know, George Tenet, um, a lot of people think that he was a good uh, uh, director. Um, but a very, very good friend of mine who was very close to him said to me one day when, when this topic came up, he says, He's not a wartime consigliere. He was great for the, you know, sub-Russell political stuff and, and everything that went around. But when you are at war, and we were at war, <laughs> post 9-11, uh, for a while anyway, um, you have to have a, 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 a somebody who knows how to fight, who's got the courage to go on the line. And what was told to me by, by again, people in the know was that they were more concerned, they, agency management, with the fact that, look, if this thing is a success, if Prado and his team are a success, nobody, we can't get the credit for it. The agency will not be able to say, yeah, we did that. But if it fails, they're the ones that go to jail. <laughs> What's they, that old they, saying? They get the blame. Yeah, success has many fathers, but failure is an orphan. Yeah, um, correct. People, hey, well, let, let me ask you a couple things. So, throughout, you might remember these guys. I ran into him, got to talk with him. I said, What a fascinating job. Jonathan Terry used to do the PDB for Cheney during this time. His, his son and my son wrestled together. Um, but I got to know uh, does the name Glenn Gaffney ring a bell? No, it doesn't. Glenn was uh, the director of uh, DS. Uh, DS and T, and then he became an assistant director, I believe, maybe after you left, but he was. You were talking about patterns of life. I was having a discussion with him. I think he was 30 years at the agency, um, but was on the, um, uh, you know, Directorate of Science and Technology and those guys. But I loved what you said, and I wish we would incorporate this more. You were talking about patterns of life, looking at stuff. I'm working with him on a different project. But it was like, he says, look, he told used to tell his people, if the rules of the game aren't working for you, change the game. Too often we want to look at the rules as like, if you really want to disrupt stuff, dude, change the game. Don't Don't play by their rules. That's the problem we've had. And the uh, my my quick turn for rent because I had some friends in the agency. We talked about some of this. One of the biggest things they saw is nobody wanted to take a risk anymore. Lawyers got involved. People were being uh, pulled before Congress and and being hammered. And it was like we're trying to do good here, and we're spending all our time getting targeted. Getting when they were told, "Hey, we're going to come after you, CIA people, for these um, enhanced interrogation techniques. Uh, that's bad. You guys shouldn't have done that." I I mean. 
how soul sucking is it to be doing your job and have elected political leaders like the president of the United States saying, hey, you did these things, we're going to come after you, you know, quit doing that kind of shit because, um, you know, we're just we're going to start putting people in jail for stuff like this. Yeah. And, you know, the, the very uh, clear thing when um, we were authorized not only by the president. But also DOJ bought off and, and approved the methods. And what people don't understand that what was carrying what was carried out is not torture. It's called enhanced interrogations. And all of us who are special in the military go through a course called SEER. SEER. SEER school is exactly that. You know, they don't let you sleep for days. They don't feed you. They slap you around. They don't let you sleep. They're playing loud music. I, 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 I spent, I don't know how many days, could have been three, could have been five, in a phone booth size box um, with two, two cans, one to pee in and the other one to poop in, and getting interrogated two or three times a day. Um, that's that's what we, what we put our special people through to prepare them. If they get compromised, this is the best that's, that can happen to them because it's actually worse. So, yeah, the, the politics again uh, kicked in and, and uh, it was a change of an administration. And all of a sudden, those were the kind of things that they could really throw a lot of mud at. And just uh, to throw out there, Morgan, you mentioned the PDB. For our listeners, that's the president's daily briefing. Oh, I'm in trouble. We're supposed to define acronyms, and there I went yes. violating one of my own rules. Um, Shame on you. Drink. I will. I will drink two beers tonight instead of one <laughs> as punishment um, for that. But but you know, Rick, let me ask you this because we're going to be closing. You know, we want to be respectful of your time. We but but the other thing too is we intentionally wanted to record this so that we could get this out on 9/11. This episode is mm -hmm. going to drop on Monday, 9/11. Let's kind of let's kind of um, talk about. As after you finished, but now that you can reflect back on it, now that you're kind of free of certain things, you're you're unencumbered with certain uh, things that you can say. What 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 is going on in the world right now, and what what do we need to be concerned about that we're not keeping our eye on the ball? I think we've taken our eye off the ball on several things for a long time. For example, like China. Uh, I don't want to say Iran because, but I think we've we've pissed away some advantages we've had with Iran, and I grew up there. When my dad was military, I lived under the days of the Shah. Um, talk about a country that has completely changed. What's the big picture now? If if you were given a briefing, let's say to senior people in businesses and uh, you know uh, governments and stuff, what would be your message? What what is going on in the world right now? We're missing the ball on. We're missing the ball on the fact that they are real predators out in the world, and they do want to destroy us. The Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians. Radical Muslim terrorism have one goal, and that's to dominate. We, we don't understand that as Americans because we have such a beautiful, albeit fragile democracy, or, you know, uh, we, we, don't, we, don't, we cannot conceptualize what the enemy is willing to do. And I've, I, this is something that I've taught for years when I was working with the folks overseas. You cannot judge operations by your morality. You have to look at operations by the morality of your enemy. They will take, and this happened to us in, in, in Iraq, they took a, uh, a guy that had clearance to go into the, to the green zone. They took his son. They took his daughter. They shot his daughter and said, if you don't put this device in the compound, we're going to shoot your, your kid. I could never do that. For God and country, I couldn't do that. But you have to understand that our enemy does. And I mentioned it earlier, you cannot run military or intelligence operations through a political optic. You know, have have the courage to cry havoc and let's slip the dogs of war, because that's what we are. We can go in there, take care of a problem. Perfect example, if somebody could have shot Hitler in 1939, or if somebody could have shot Fidel Castro in 1970-something, or if we would have been able to neutralize Bin Laden in 1996, 97, we'd be living in a very different world with any of those three uh, phenomena. So, you make a great point because there were uh, initiatives to, I think, a little bit too late. But you still had, um, um, you know, the 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 plot to kill Hitler, which the movie Valkyrie is about. You know, and but real people, real people decided they didn't want this. I know we tried several times with uh, Castro. Um, People look at it and they go, oh, well, you can't do that. That's not fair. You know what's not fair? 
killing 243 Marines, killing 3,000 Americans. You know, you listed it out in your book so much. That's what's not fair. We got to get rid of this concept of fair. If I had a political science professor tell me fair, it doesn't exist. Fair is the place you go uh, ride rides and then have cotton candy. We got to quit thinking of this concept of the word fair. Let me give you kind of a last word because we want to talk about some of the stuff you're doing now. But let's say that the government was able to uh, seduce you and bring you back to say, look, we want you to create policy to do things differently. I I had a concern that maybe we got too attached to technology like, you know, ELINT, electronic intelligence, signals intelligence. But we've kind of lost our way with human intelligence. Uh, Did they not you know what well, let me ask you that that just throw that out there for you to talk about are we doing everything we can or if rick prada was in charge you were king you were in charge for 6 months or whatever it would take what would you do differently to to make uh cia and even other organizations more effective in delivering the kind of results we need to make a safer america well the first thing is take the politics out of it uh the second is grow some backbone and pride for your country Third is realize that our enemies are trying to kill us. It's not a concept. They would love to destroy us as a country or as individuals. Let us do what our charters are. It's like you guys with law enforcement, right? You don't need new laws. You need to enforce, be allowed to enforce the laws that are already in the book. Hallelujah, brother. (laughs) That's me and Murph raising our hands going hallelujah. Absolutely. Hallelujah. And, and, you know, in the agency, you know, we know our charter. We know what we're capable. We've demonstrated it with the Contras. We demonstrated it with with post 9-11. The agency can cowboy up and get things done. But you got to let them loose. you got to protect them. Because what happens is, and you were talking about enhanced interrogations that hit home, because the guy that really bore the saddle in this was Jose Rodriguez. Jose Rodriguez is one of my best friends. He's, you know, he was the, the DDO at one time. I got- I got his book. I actually had a chance to meet him down at Fox News. Great. Well, him and I are actually neighbors. So that's how far back we go with big motorcycle (laughs) riders for decades. But but anyway, uh, Jose got wrapped into this whole thing um, and and literally destroyed him for for quite a while until he was able to, you know, extricate himself out of it and prove him not guilty and everything else. But the bottom line is, yeah, you, you know, you can't. You cannot play, you cannot fight a war through Queensberry rules right. if your enemy is an MMA mixed martial arts expert. You're going to get your butt kicked every single time. You have to be able to do the same things with the same ferocity, but with a higher morality, because we are the United States. We do we do have that, 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 that Christian concept. Um, but... Absolutely. If if I was king for a day, I would allow our respective agencies to first be um, politics be taken out of it. In the case of the CIA, we have guys like Kofor Black. We got guys like Jose Rodriguez that could be our DCIs. Those are the kind of people that you want as directors of an agency, people that have been on the streets, that understand what our concepts are, not a political appointee who owes his or hers alliance to the administration. The alliance of a leader of any organization is their people. So I honestly believe if we depoliticize the situation and we allow under the legal charters that that we enjoy to actually go after our enemies and let them know that we're here. And I think that's something we have lost over the years. I had a agree 100%. Yeah. I don't want to say I had an argument, but I had a vigorous discussion with somebody whose uh, political leanings were quite different than mine. But they were talking, here's what we ought to do. I said, let me ask you a question. I said, how do you negotiate and how would you negotiate with somebody who's opening premises? I want to kill you. Where do you go from there? Perfect example. And, and that is exactly what it is. And, and this is why I said, look, J- Jimmy Carter is the perfect example. Of I, I don't like talking politics. Uh, that's that's not my thing. But I like history like you. Yeah. Jimmy Carter was a good man, former military admiral, um, honest. He wasn't corrupt, uh, good Christian. Everything was there, except he came across as food. He was vacillating. He did it with with the uh, the, the rescue of our, our uh, the Iranian hostages, hostages. In, in, yep. in, during Iran and, and everything else. So 
But look what happened during his short administration. We lost the Panama Canal. The Russians invade Afghanistan. The Iranians take our hostages for 444 days. What happened when Ronald Reagan took over? Within 24 hours, our hostages in Iran were released. Why do you think that is? Mm -hmm. Because they knew that the, this guy was going to use the hammer. And the same way as you guys working undercover with a, with a perp, they got to look at you across the table and go, if I mess with this guy, he's going to bite me back. Well said. Well said. I can keep doing this for another couple of hours, but we can't do that. But, hey, but we want to talk about, first of all, this is us saluting you and me saluting you, saying thank you for your service to our country, uh, especially somebody who comes from Cuba uh, and um, knew what it was like. I mean, looking at your window, seeing <laughs> seeing uh, automatic weapons. I, I never saw an automatic weapon until I was at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. First time I saw one, I was a Kansas farm boy. We saw 22 rifles, you know, in 308s, but... Anyway, I say that to say this is that we're so proud of what you did, but I'm very proud of what you continue to do because Murph has a saying, and I'll let you say what it is, Murph, before I ask him my question. The about oath. cops? No, about the oaths. About what? Oaths. Uh, oh, do you yes. hear? Do you understand the words coming out of my lips? Not very well today, <laughs> but uh, we we do have a saying, Rick, that just because we retired does not mean that our oaths expired. And you're a living example of that. And that's why we want everybody to know what you're doing now. Thank you very much. That's very kind of you. And I, the, the respect is mutual. And so is the salute. Uh, yeah, one, one of the things that uh, when I left the agency, I went to Blackwater for six years. Uh, actually, more than that, um, doing the same thing. As a matter of fact, I was vice president for special government programs um, that, you know, even the FBI will call that a clue. And, um, and, I don't mean to interrupt you, Rick, but I just you got to tell us how you got to Blackwater because I read it in the book and it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it, it was funny because what happened was when 9-11 happened, we needed security in Kabul. And State Department, of course, was exploding with, you know, trying to protect all the embassies. So they said we need to bring in some private uh, privateers. Our executive director, Bozy Krongard, a very dear friend, a big supporter of my programs. I wish he had been my boss uh at the time um his son was a seal so he opened up seal team seven he introduced eric prince in blackwater to the agency and that was the first security detail that went into afghanistan was uh was was a blackwater uh and, and eric prince was part of it even though he was the boss he was actually part of the detail uh so and then what happened when i started that special program uh at the end of my career I didn't want to train in, in our black facilities because if they see a guy with my background and my reputation with a bunch of meat eaters doing all this repelling upside down kind of stuff, they're going to say something's going on. So I went to Eric and I said, we want to do some specialized training, but nobody can know who we are, what our names are. And that's how I got to be friends with Eric. He saw what we were doing. Um, and when I retired, he says, I want you to come to Blackwater, and I want you to do this for God and country. This you, you, You're going to be our, our moral conscience uh, for the operations. And I will tell you, I did as much during my years of Blackwater as, as I did in the agency and had a lot more fun because I didn't have the political bullshit to deal with. Yeah, but initially you turned him down, and, and who recommended you for that job when you were at some event? <laughs> God, you got it. You did read the book. Yeah. What, what happened was, you know, I was so heartbroken when I when I left the agency. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I've been doing that for years. I did twenty four years in the agency pararescue before that, um, and I was exhausted. I had three years of flying all over the place, helping my guys chase these guys. Uh, so when he first pitched me, I said, "Look, you know, I'm kind of burned out. I, I need I need a oh, break." Hold on. Hold on. I love what you just said. Here's the CIA term. When he pitched me, it's like he's trying to turn you from the from <laughs> the government side to the dark side. Exactly. Well, that, that's what we He pitched me. But uh, what happened was um, we were – Eric used to sponsor this event, this Golden Gold Cup, which is – and I love horses, and he knew that. So he always invited me and my wife to go to the Gold Cup. And we're sitting there at the Gold Cup, and Eric comes up. And my wife, who's usually very shy. Um, Eric puts his arm around and says, Hey, how you doing? Congrats, you know, blah, blah, blah. And uh, my wife looks at him and says, Eric, 
please give him a job. He's driving me. <laughs> you got to love him. <laughs> and, and Eric looked at me, he goes, really? I said, yes, yeah. let's have lunch tomorrow. And that's when he recruited me for the long term. I, I, I love that story. I so think I. your wife was a, a co-conspirator in this uh, <laughs> initiative to get you on board with the uh, Blackwater. <laughs> Yeah, she probably got some money on the side from Eric to to uh, <laughs> resourceful lady. I think we call that a bump, don't we? Was that not a bump there, Rick? <laughs> That's the way it all starts. <laughs> hey, but but you're involved in some other stuff too. We were talking about kids, and uh, I mean, you still got some stuff doing some training like uh, Camp X, uh, and uh, I mean, you, you've got the solo operator course. I looked at that as like, oh my god, that would be so much fun to do. Five days learning how as a solo operator with basically just a sidearm, but surviving. Um, uh, you're, you're doing some, I mean, stuff that just you, you, you. I start getting goosebumps when I look at this, but I like the stuff you're doing with kids. What What are you doing there? Well, the the, the two the two things that I've been engaged with. Um, um, first of all, there was a big transition in the military from kinetic options to actually being able to operate clandestinely for our special operations forces which means move it into my world. So the whole concept of a lone operator is that. Now you have special operations guys that have to get rid of all their kit. They have to blend in. They learn to learn to use disguise, learn to use uh, sur- you know, uh, surveillance detection, and be very proficient in, in firearms, handguns, not M4s, uh, knives, not guns, because sometimes, sometimes you're in places where you could not carry a gun. The clandestine aspect, the fact that if you draw your weapon during an operation in the in the black in the clandestine world, you've blown the operation even if you survive it. Um, so that that was a lot of fun because you know working for for several years with the special operations. I, I taught at Fort Bragg, our soft guys that advanced special operations and techniques course for seven years, and then with these guys, we were doing all the good kinetic concealed carry, real concealed carry. And how to take the you know gun from a military person so you could use it in a third world country, whatever. The uh, the second effort that you refer to is ARC, is Association of the Rescue of Children. And I do this pro bono. I'm on their board of directors, and I provide overseas connectivity based on my substantial network that I built through the years at Blackwater, uh, and and somewhat the agency also. And ARC, um, that's what they do. It's a, it's a nonprofit. Uh, Basil Bass is the uh, the guy who uh, conceptualized it and ran it. Uh, Basil is a former uh, force recon guy who came to the agency as a paramilitary officer, uh, PMO, uh, did about 10 years and then went to Hollywood for a while. And then he started this this organization. And it's, it's done some good work. It's done some good work retrieving kids over, you know, that have been kidnapped and taken overseas and, and or preventing. So very proud no. of those two. No higher calling than that right there. We, you know, we've had uh, a couple other folks on here just recently, Ty Holland from Operation uh, Underground Railroad, who's a retired police officer from Seattle, describing, he was just, uh, he was our guest on episode 113. Um, and we're, we're, we've had victims on here who were victims of, uh, Natasha Herzig was a victim of human trafficking and sex trafficking. And we're doing our best to bring more attention to that particular topic now that the movie Sound of Freedom is out and and people are aware of what's going on. So, you know, I was uh, I found out this about you on your LinkedIn profile and I'm brother. I mean, there's no higher calling than what you're doing right there. I'm just so proud that you're involved with that. Thank you very much. We are, too. We all we all have children. And, you know, when when these kids go through that, their lives will never be the same again, even if we rescue them. the, the, the experience has to be something that will scar you for life. Yeah. Hey, quick question before we close out. Did you ever work with the uh, first capabilities integration group? No. no. Um, interesting. That's that they've got an interesting background too. A lot of the stuff you're doing. Uh, anyway, let's do this. Let's bring this to a close. And, and first of all, this is a high honor. First of all, for somebody who mm-hmm. served the way you did and the places you were. And, and I mean that literally, it's like, uh, I've, I've got friends from the agency, um, and when they can, the things that they can talk about, you know, we're only scratching the surface. We're only getting 5% of what you probably did. And by the way, your book, I love, uh, you left the redactions in. It's kind of like, fuck, you, you know, I'm okay. It's there. I just can't talk about it, but you left the redactions in there. So I, I like that. People can do a little bit of sleuthing and maybe figure out a couple mm-hmm. things, but uh, I can't tell you how much we appreciate yeah. you taking your time and how important this was. 
we got this recorded. We had some technical challenges. We all overcame those. We figured it out um, because I wanted this to come out on 9-11 and, and I wanted people just to keep it in their forefront is don't don't let time, um, you know, erase these memories. Don't don't get fatigued by the fact, ah, here we go again. Now, that's that's what our enemies count on is for us. To your point, we got adversaries that thinks in terms of generations. We think in terms of elections and we got to start changing our thinking. But again, well, us saluting you, Rick. Yeah, and Rick, before before we'll give you the last word here, brother, but um, I love the fact that you point out the difference between Hollywood and the real CIA. Um, we, we, being my old DEA partner, when we were in Bogota, Colombia, we had a run-in with the chief of station, and, and that tainted our view of CIA. But, um, you know, <laughs> we give you guys a hard time. But, you know, we also explained to our audiences that that was one person. That was not the entire agency. The CIA gets such a bad rap because it's a secret agency and you can't divulge what's going on or there would be it would affect the security of our country. So it's easy for politicians, especially the media, to get up and badmouth you guys when in, in reality and the truth, you're all freaking heroes. You're all American patriots. You're, you've dedicated your life to serving Americans to protect us here in our homeland. So, uh, God, I mean, God bless you, brother. There's just no higher calling than you were willing to give your life for your fellow man. So a salute's not good enough. I hope that you and I have the opportunity someday to, to share a couple of good Cuban cigars and talk crap about Morgan and, and uh, just get to know each other better. And, and I want to personally thank you for everything you've done for our country. Well, it, it, it'd be my, it's my honor. It would be my honor to get together with you guys. I salute you right back because you obviously, you know, you have, you know, national security is a team sport, mm -hmm. you know, Everybody plays a role in it, from the cop on the street to, you know, to the head of, of a federal agency. So um, I'm very proud of that. And I would like to add to what you said about the agency. The thing that keeps me really, really humble is that for all the years in the agency and in pararescue, I must admit, I walked in, in, in the shadow of giants. You know, guys who did so much. And that I was so honored that they, to even be able to talk to them. Um, so, yes, I'm very proud of what I've been able to do for God and country. It was my debt of honor to this country. But at the same time, I don't let it go to my head because I know personally guys like Billy Waugh and Dewey Claridge and people that have done so much more um, to play that team sport and, and save American lives. Real heroes. Real heroes. Well, hey, we're going to close this out, but we, we did this. Uh, especially for 9-11, uh, we want to never forget, mm -hmm. never forget September 11th, 2001, never forget what people like Rick and other people were doing to defend and protect our country. And I will, I'll just leave you with this. Get the politics out of it. Let us get back to doing what we do well at all the different levels and keep America safe. So this is us saluting you again. We're bringing this to a close. Don't go anywhere, Rick and Steve. Hang on, everybody else. Stay tuned for the debrief. I just, I, you know, listening to his stories and stuff, I still get goosebumps. We got goosebumps while we were talking with him. Mm -hmm. And you even mentioned that. I mean, and look, um, I mean, what can you say? Here's somebody who who was willing. Uh, I mean, you talk about operating in the jungles against the Sandinistas. His life was uh, uh, literally in danger every moment. He, they, they had people uh, in the camps that were looking to identify and find the people that are working for the government, the CIA. And it, it, had it not been for a little bit of a hiccup you know, he would have been in one of those ambushes you know they've lost people so man my my, my i just salute him and look you got to go read his book um black yes. ops um you know uh the, the, this and we have it it's on our website too and you can go to rick prado r-i-c-p-r-a-d-o.com it's called black ops the life of a cia shadow warrior this thing was number one on the new york times when he, he said he sold i think 75 or eighty thousand copies of this book already that's phenomenal for a wow. for a book like this Absolutely. You get an insider's look. And it's one of those books when you start reading, uh, it's hard to put it down because you want to see what the next adventure is. And when you were talking about him working down there with the Contras against the Sandinistas, keep in mind, he's out there by himself. And at that point, when he first started doing it, he wasn't even an employee of the CIA. He was a contractor. With no what, training, here's a gun, go into the jungle and do some shit. 
Now, he was a pararescue guy in the military prior to that. So, I mean, this guy's a stud all the way through. He he grew up a little bit of a tough life, you know, the way he came over from Cuba. But just I have the utmost respect for Rick. I can't thank you enough, Rick, for coming on the show if you're listening to this. Um, you know, support this man through his book, and uh, let's see what he does next. And just remember, this episode comes out on September 11th, 2023, the 22nd anniversary of 9-11. And Murph, you read from the book, you read the figures that Rick's got in his book, the number. If we had taken out bin Laden Mm -hmm. when we had the chance and should have, how many lives would have been saved? It's It's incalculable. But we know at least 343 plus 34 plus almost 3,000 just on 9-11. Yeah. Over actually other. over three thousand when you when you consider Pennsylvania when you consider the Pentagon you consider the Twin Towers the firefighters the Port Authority of New York um, when you can just those lives right there and not including all of the people that have died because of responding to that the the cancers the diseases mm-hmm. um, you know just you know anyway, it's it's hard to put into words so uh, this is us again saluting you Rick you may not see us but here we are saluting you again and hope you guys enjoyed this this is a this was a for us a very important episode uh, to put out on so part two came out on Tuesday but part one came out on Monday September 11th never forget the 22nd anniversary of 9/11 absolutely everybody thank you so much uh, quick shout out to my oldest son Josh today 9/11 is his birthday that's a birthday I'll never forget. Yeah, But uh, thank you for joining us, everyone. And thank you guys once again. As you see here, this is um, one of the world's most dangerous things. So thank you for playing, once again, the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the Game of Crimes. Crimes.